All right, my friends, good morning to you. Uh, we are going to study the book of Matthew this morning, chapter 1, so you can go ahead and turn there. I'll begin with by saying, Merry Christmas. Now you probably hear that and you think, this guy's crazy. Or you think, man, I really lost track of time. Uh, is it really that late already here? Well, uh, obviously it's not December yet and you haven't missed the rest of the summer. I say Merry Christmas because the title of our sermon today is Christmas in August. Because this morning, as we make our way verse by verse through uh, the book of Matthew, we're going to look at that story which we commonly come to on Christmas Eve or right around uh, the Christmas season. So again, you can turn in your Bibles to chapter 1 of the book of Matthew, verse 18. Let's pray together. Father, bless this message. Lord, I, I just appreciate the opportunity now to consider these things maybe separate from the holidays, separate from the busyness of that time, separate sort of from the anticipation of gathering with family or presents or all those things, but really just sort of almost in a sense cerebral, in a cerebral way looking at this and considering it a little separate from all of the stuff that goes with the Christmas time. And Father, I, we're also praying, we don't just want this to be head knowledge for us, we're praying that you would come and you administer to our hearts. Lord, that you draw us into your presence, Lord. Even as sort of the study is going, Lord, you'd just be bringing us deeper and deeper and deeper into that Holy of Holies so that we would just sit before you and we might hear, Lord, what it is you want to speak to our hearts. We're praying, Lord, for your rich blessing on our time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, last week when we left off, we were last week we were looking at the genealogy of Jesus. We were taking our way through as it starts in verse 2 with Abraham and going all the way to the birth of Jesus. And I, I made a quick point, actually two quick points, right at the end of uh, our study. And that is related to chapter 1, verse 16. So go back and look at chapter 1, verse 16. Those words read this. It said, And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. And the two points that I made, the first one was this, that there is a distinct difference between in the wording of verse 16 than the pattern that Matthew set from verse 2 all the way to verse 15. So from 2 to 15, you keep having this repeated phrase, and so-and-so was the father of so-and-so who was the father of so-and-so, and then that changes in the second half of verse uh, 16. Look back to verse 2 for a minute. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Verse 2, it says, And Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah, and so on. And it's repeated that way all the way down into verse 16. But notice verse 16. It says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, that's the norm. But then it says, Who was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. And so verse 16 points out very clearly that though Joseph is connected to Jesus, that he is not the father of Jesus but rather that Jesus is the son of Mary who was married to Joseph. That's significant. The second point I made last week has to do with that phrase there that's in many of our English translations, that phrase where it says, of whom Jesus was born. And if you were with us, maybe you recall that I pointed out a couple of things about that phrase translated of whom in the original language. One of them has to do with it's the, the usage defines whether it's a singular term or a plural term. In this case, it's a singular term. Also, the usage implies gender, and the gender is feminine. So here it says, again, uh, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, 
who is called the Christ. It would be wrong for us to look at that and say, well, it's talking about the two of them. So-and-so is the child of Glenn and Ellen. That's not what it's saying there, because it's only speaking of one of them. It's singular. And if you would say, well, then he's got to be the son of Joseph. No, no, because it's speaking of the feminine one of those two. And so again, as I mentioned last week, it's very clear that Matthew is trying to point out that this child, Jesus here, is the physical offspring of only one of them and only the feminine one of them. That is Mary. And so here in this verse, Matthew is introducing to us the idea of the virgin birth of the Messiah. Now as we move into the rest of chapter 1, he's going to explain those events that surrounded that night or leading up to that night in greater detail. Now you may recall when we began our study last week, it was sort of an introduction to the book of Matthew. And during that introduction, one of the things I pointed out is that there are four different versions, if you will, of the life of Jesus. We call those the Gospels. Four different Gospel accounts of his life. Four different vantage points from which people, if you will, from afar sort of observed Jesus and then presented to us so that we could know and believe that this Jesus, as it says in the book of John, that this Jesus is the Son of God. And that believing in Him, you would have life in His name. Now, of those Gospels, the four of them, three of them mention sort of the events involving the birth of Jesus. Interesting, for whatever reason, Mark doesn't mention anything about the birth of Jesus. Mark just jumps right into the ministry of Jesus. And he starts with the ministry of John the Baptist and then the baptism of Jesus. And he goes on from there. He doesn't say anything about the birth. The Gospel of John really only has one verse. John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word, look at a capital W, Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the entirety of his message, if you will, the information he gives us about the birth of Jesus. And he says a couple other things related to that. And then he goes on to the ministry of John the Baptist. So all that we really know about the birth, the events leading up to the birth of Jesus are found for us in the book of Luke and the book of Matthew. And Luke gives us decidedly more uh, information. So in Luke, we learn these things. We learn that it was revealed to Mary that she would miraculously conceive. We wouldn't know that if it wasn't for Luke. We learn that she then takes off from there and goes and visits her cousin, who is also miraculously pregnant. She was something like in her 60s and hadn't been able to conceive, and now she did conceive. And so she runs, and runs off and visits with her older cousin. That baby is John the Baptist. We learn from the book of Luke that the baby inside of Elizabeth leaps when Mary, with her baby Jesus, comes into the room, if you will. It's also in Luke's account that we learn about the census, you may recall, their trip to Bethlehem, the barn and the manger and the shepherds that are out in the field. It's in Luke that we learn that eight days later he was presented at the temple. So most of what we know about the birth of Jesus is given to us in the book of Luke. Now Matthew, compared to Luke, doesn't share very much. Compared to Mark and John, it shares some good information with us as well. And so it says, this is how it says about the birth. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 25. It says, And Joseph knew her not, that's Mary, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. That's what we know about the birth from Matthew. It, it kind of reminds me, the, the difference between the way Matthew, John, and, and, and Mark talk about it, 
and the way that Luke re- talks about it, it kind of reminds me of the way new moms they, and dads are a little bit different. New moms will tell you a million details, even down to the baby's length and weight in ounces. New dads, they'll say, we had a baby. And if they're like really modern dads, they'll know the gender of the baby. We had a baby girl, you know, or something like that. You know, there's just a different way that they decided to present this material. But even though it's brief, Matthew's account is helpful for us. Because what Matthew's account does is it reveals some of the details of the event from the vantage point of Joseph. And so we don't have these details in some of the other versions. We don't know, in Luke in particular, we don't know a lot about Joseph in the Bible. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot about the one who would serve as Jesus' father here on the earth. But we do learn some interesting things about Joseph in this particular passage. So with that in mind, let me read through the passage. See if you can kind of pick out some of these things as well. It says this, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, as I said, little is known about Joseph from the pages of Scripture. Matthew chapter 13, Mark chapter 6 will both tell us that he was a carpenter, so we learn that from there. But other than that, pretty much everything else we know about Joseph comes from this passage here in Matthew and those passages that are in Luke. It seems that it's a pretty safe conclusion on our part that Joseph died sometime either before the public ministry of Jesus or during the early years of the public ministry of Jesus. It seems very clear that he was not alive when Jesus went to the cross. And we base that essentially on the fact that Jesus looks at John, his disciple, and instructs him to take care of his mother, Mary. The idea being, the implication being that uh, her husband is no longer alive. We do have a little bit more revealed to us about Mary in the Bible, but not a lot more. Most people probably know more in our day about Mary than Joseph, but there's not a whole lot more that is revealed in the Bible about her. And sadly, I think, personally, I think two extremes have come about regarding people's opinions of Mary. And so there are some, perhaps out of a Roman Catholic background, that venerate Mary, and in some cases even worship Mary as the Holy Mother of God and things like that. And then there are others, particularly out of a Protestant background, that sort of rebel against that extreme and almost bash Mary as if she had something to do with this theology. The theology developed about 500 years, 400 years after Mary even lived. And some Protestants like, I hate that Mary, as if it's her fault or something. She didn't develop these theological ideas that, that some people hold in this day. I think a proper response to Mary is somewhere in between there. 
This is what we know about Mary. Mary was a sinner that was saved by grace, just like you and I, and that Mary took tremendous steps of faith to walk in obedience to God at great cost to herself. That's what we know about Mary. And so in that sense, she's a woman that we should look to and say, you know what? She's an admirable woman. I hope I walk my faith out like she has walked out her faith that we read about in the Scriptures. Both her and Mary, or Joseph, I should say. So we learn a bunch of things about these two. We learn a lot about Joseph here in this passage. For instance, look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So what we learn about Joseph is that he was a just man. Another version translates that, that he was a man that did what was right. And so here is a guy, he's not perfect, he's not without sin, but here's a guy that's seeking to live his life in such a way that it's in obedience to the leading of God, the Scriptures in our case we might say, and how God is directing. So he's a man who sought to do that which was right. Also, look at verse 19. It also says uh, that in this instance he was unwilling to put Mary to shame, and so he resolved to divorce her quietly. And so that teaches us that Joseph is a merciful man. Because the circumstances that Joseph is faced with, it, they appear to be such that dictated that he had to divorce his wife. She had clearly been unfaithful. She had gone off uh, with another person or whatever it may be. She's pregnant. I can't go forward with this marriage here. But in doing so, he doesn't want to, he knows what he feels he has to do, but he doesn't want to unnecessarily shame her or embarrass her or ultimately see her become severely punished. And so here is a guy, he's committed to doing what's right according to the circumstances that are in front of him, but at the same time he's determined to do so in a way that is merciful and kind to this woman that he loves. So he's a merciful man. We also learn verse, uh, in verse 20 that Joseph is a thoughtful man. And what I mean by thoughtful is not that he sends cards to people on their birthday. What I mean by thoughtful is he's contemplative. He thinks things through. He doesn't just jump into action. If he just jumped into action, he would have divorced her right away. But as it says in verse 20, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord came and spoke to him. There's great wisdom in being prudent, isn't there? There's great wisdom in being prudent because how many times do we get ourselves into trouble because we just jump right in and we don't allow time for either all the facts to be considered or for God's Spirit to kind of minister to our heart and to direct us with how we are to respond. Joseph is an example to us of a fellow that is thoughtful, contemplative, working these things out, and not just jumping into action. There's always time to make a decision. And so he has the time and he takes the time. Now we learn one last thing about Mary, and even about, excuse me, about Joseph, and also about Mary from this passage and a similar one in the book of Luke. And that is that we learn that the lives that Mary and Joseph live are lives that are marked by obedience. Let me explain that from verse 24 of the Matthew passage. It says, When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. So God had spoken, and it says he did. Mary, for instance, she is told in the book of Luke that she is going to have a baby. The angel comes, announces to her that she is going to conceive. She's sort of confused about that. How can this be? What's going to be conceived in you is of the Holy Spirit. And so she's, her response to that then, that's enough, that's all she needed, she says, behold, I am the handmaiden of the Lord. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. 
So Mary and Joseph, in these stories that we have before us, they demonstrate to us a huge amount of courage and obedience in response to this call that they raise God's Messiah. Now, think about the circumstances. Doubts inevitably are going to come. People aren't going to be inclined to believe when you as an unmarried woman come in and people see that you're pregnant and you say, oh no, I know what you're thinking, but don't worry, it's of the Holy Spirit. I'm conceived of the Holy Spirit. People aren't going to be inclined to believe that. Historically, Josephus, for instance, tells us that all sorts of rumors went out about Mary. Some were insisting that she and Joseph were immoral. Other rumors were out there that Mary uh, got involved with a Roman soldier and was impregnated either willingly or unwillingly by that Roman soldier. There are places in the book of John, John chapter 8, which make reference to the way the culture, the society, thought about Jesus and his parents, uh, Mary in particular. So John chapter 8, 41, it says this, these religious leaders, they say to Jesus, they're in like a confrontation, and they just pull out the trump card. It's a bad term nowadays with that guy that's running for office. Anyhow, they pull out this card of some sorts, and they say to Jesus, yeah, well, we weren't born of sexual morality. And the implication then that they go on in the story is, look, we know who our father is. And today, they might say, well, who's your daddy? You don't even know. And you can think of the other terms that would come out there. For Mary and Joseph to say yes to this divine call was to open themselves up for the rest of their lives in this small little community they live in to rumor, to ridicule, to slander for the rest of their lives. And yet both Joseph and Mary, separately it seems, and then ultimately together, they respond by saying, well, if this is what the Lord is calling me to do, then we'll do it. And then they go and they walk in obedience. Now, great men and women of the faith, it's kind of the theme through the Bible that we've been catching as we're looking through different passages of the Scripture. The great men and women of faith have always been required to step out and take great steps of obedience. Now, some of us hear that and we say, you know, I want to be a great man of God. I want to be a great woman of God. I want to do something, you know, that is really used for the kingdom of God. And we hear a statement like that and we think, you know what, I'm ready. When God asks me to do something great, I'm going to do it. My name will go down in history as one that advanced the kingdom of God to His glory. And we think, I can do it. I'm ready for that. But here's the reality. It's almost never going to begin with something grand. But it's always going to be some small, seemingly unimportant, insignificant thing that God's going to call you to obey Him in. That's where it starts. That is where the character trait, or if you want to say, that is where the habit of obedience begins. So God says, you know what? I want you to get up early and I want you to seek my face. And we respond to that and we say, yes, Lord, I'll do that. We don't rationalize it away. We say, you're calling me to do it, I'll do it. God says, you know what? I want you to go over and I want you to sit with that so-called outcast over there. And we respond, yes, Lord, I'll go over there. I don't know why you want me to go over there, but I'll go over there and sit with that person. God says, I want you to die to yourself. I want you to swallow your pride. I want you to submit your will in this particular relationship. And we respond, yes, Lord. Nothing grand, but it's those small things that we develop the character trait of obedience. And I can tell you that I can assure you without a doubt in my mind that this is not the first act of obedience 
on the part of Mary and Joseph. Kids, really. Mary, it's estimated probably 15 years old. Maybe a little younger, perhaps a little bit older, but not much. Joseph may be out of his teens in his early 20s. And these two kids, if you will, this is definitely not the first act of obedience on their part. Because what these guys had done is what all great followers of Christ will do, we'll call it that, is they had developed in their lives the habit of saying yes to God in the little things. And what that does is prepares them to say yes when we are called to obey in the big things. And again, as I said a little, long, a little while ago, we need to cultivate the habit of saying yes to God in the smallest areas of our lives. And in doing so, we are then prepared when he calls us to say yes in the big areas. And so Joseph and Mary. We don't venerate Joseph and Mary. We don't worship them. We don't pray to them. But we do honor them for their obedient faith. And the impact their obedience has had on who we are today. So Joseph and Mary. Now, let's start digging kind of right through this text. That's sort of an overview of the passage here. Look at verse 18 again. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. So the passage begins by telling us that Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Some of your versions may have the word espoused to Joseph. We would translate that they were engaged okay, in our culture. Now, notice the next verse, however, verse 19, it refers to Joseph as her husband. We would say fiancé. And there's a big difference, right, between a husband and a fiancé. But now, it's referring to her as a husband. So one verse is saying they're betrothed to one another. The next one says that they're husband and wife with one another. Well, obviously, a little explanation is needed there. And I'll do so. Let me explain, and you know, you're, you're around, but let's compare it to our culture. In our culture... We have sort of stages that ultimately lead up to marriage. I talk to young people and they inform me of this. Matthew, tell me if I'm correct. We begin with talking. Am I right? We're just talking. And for those of us that are older, that doesn't have to be verbal. It could be texting. You know, but we're just talking. We're talking with one another. Nothing more than that. We're just talking. That eventually will move to dating, but we don't call it dating. We're seeing one another or something like that. Am I correct? I'm not correct. You can tell me I'm wrong. Okay, I'm fine. Thank you very much. And so mom will usually embarrass their kid, their son or something, and say, oh, it seems like things are getting more serious with so-and-so. Yes, we're seeing one another. We respond there. And then eventually in time, the relationship makes a more definitive move toward marriage, and the couple gets engaged. And then finally, they are married. That's our culture, correct? You're familiar with it? In the Jewish culture <coughs> of Jesus' day, there's a slightly different order of things. So to begin with, the couple starts with engagement. Okay, No talking, no seeing one another. They start with engagement. And the engagement could start as early as three or four years of age. So obviously mom and dad are involved in this particular process. And little you know, Johnny and little Sally, they come together and they're going to be engaged with one another. And it's not really a love story. It's more of a business transaction that is taking place. And so here this little couple is engaged. Then years go by, and some years after that engagement, if they're getting engaged at three or four, it might be 10 years, 12 years after that engagement, then comes the betrothal that we're reading about in this particular passage, or the espousal period. This is what you and I would call engagement. Now the couple has either pretty much or they have reached 
marrying age, which would be teens for a woman and maybe a little bit older than that for a man. And now the couple is actively preparing to be married. The difference between betrothal for, for them and our engagement is the seriousness of the commitment. So in the United States, certainly, or in our culture, certainly when a couple is engaged, it's pretty serious. And they've ratcheted things up, and they're getting to the point where they're getting ready to get married. They're making all the preparations toward that. But even in our culture, engaged couples, there's still a way out, isn't there? Some of you may know. You may have been engaged to other people, and you're like, whew, glad that didn't work out. And you went on to your sweetheart or something like that, the person that you were meant to be with, all this kind of stuff. So there's, sort of a, there's still that way out where someone could say, you know what, on second thought, I don't think this is going to work out between us. In the Jewish culture, the one that we're reading about here in this first century, there really wasn't a way out. Or the way out was not really that easy. And in that culture, the way out was pretty much a divorce. The same way that you would get out of a marriage. You'd have to issue a divorce. You'd have to produce a reason why you're not going to go further with this espousal to the point of consummating the relationship. So in so many ways, the couple really was already married. And that's why Joseph and Mary are referred to as husband and wife here. The Hebrew couple was as good as married, even though the relationship was yet to be consummated. So here is Mary, here is Joseph. They're betrothed to be married. And word comes to Joseph that his fiancée is pregnant. You know, just an aside, I think you can look at this and you could say the following things. I think it's pretty safe to say that this was an unplanned pregnancy. I think it's pretty safe to say, and everyone would agree, that the timing of this pregnancy was probably not ideal. I think it's obvious that Mary and Joseph were probably not ready to raise a child at this particular point in time. And I can assure you, as a parent, I'm sure Mary and Joseph were not ready for the financial burden that a baby would bring to them. And yet they go ahead anyway. You know, Every one of those things that I just share with you are the reasons so often that abortion is pushed in our society. And none of those reasons hold up, quite frankly. There's a life there. And here you have Mary. She's got a life within her. Joseph gets word. And Joseph has to make this decision of putting her away. I, I can't marry this lady. She was unfaithful to me. I said earlier that a party would need to have a reason to divorce. This would be a reason. His, this wife, this woman, has been unfaithful and she is pregnant. Now we don't have all the details, at least in Joseph's mind. We don't have all the details as to how Mary told Joseph, when Mary told Joseph that she was pregnant. We don't even know if Mary did inform Joseph that she was pregnant here. Maybe he got word some other way. The timing in the book of Luke when we look at Mary is informed she's pregnant, it goes on to say, and with haste she went to visit her cousin. That seems to imply she found out she was pregnant and took off and got out of there and left town for three, four months, the Scripture seems to say. And so if that is actually what happened, she leaves, she goes and visits her cousin Elizabeth, she returns four months later pregnant and showing. Four months is a little baby that's start, a bump that's starting to form there. And perhaps it's at that time that Joseph found out that his wife was pregnant. Maybe it's at that time that she went and informed him. Or I think a second scenario, which is just as viable, is that you know with the baby bump showing, word began to filter around town. 
Hey, did you hear Mary? It's a small little town, Nazareth, even today. Did you hear about Mary? Did you hear about this? Did you hear about see, you know, her belly and all this stuff? And word finally got back to Joseph, who was working probably that day, preparing the home that they were going to live in, that his fiancée had been unfaithful while she was away. We don't know exactly how it happened, but one way or another, Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant. And Joseph, maybe he's a guy like some of us, he hears that, immediately goes down to her house, and confronts her for her sin. Or maybe it's like others of us where Joseph just deals with the pain of that and goes off alone, sits by a river or whatever, a lake or something like that, runs into his room or whatever, and just sort of mourns the news that he heard. Again, we don't know exactly what happened. The text doesn't tell us. But at some point in time, Joseph ends up at his bed, it seems. He's been racking his brain all day as to what to do. And he comes to this conclusion. He loves this woman Mary, but he has to divorce her. And I have has in quotation marks. Because she's pregnant and he's not the father. He can't go on with this wedding. Now custom of the day told him that he had to expose her. Perhaps even cast the first stone at her stoning. But yet his heart breaks for this woman that he loves and he knows I could never let that happen to her as well. So instead he concludes, as we learn in verse 19, that he would divorce her, but that he would do so quietly. That he would call off the wedding, but that he would do so in a way that helps hinder uh, the amount of ridicule and shame and danger that would come to this woman that he loves. I said earlier, we read earlier, that Joseph was a fellow that sought to do what was right. And that begs the question, right according to whom? Joseph sought to do that which was right. Did he try to do right according to the traditions of his people? Did he try to do what was right according to the customs of his day? Or did he seek to do that which was right according to the leading of God? And so here's Joseph. He resolves to quietly divorce Mary, but even in that merciful decision, which it was, shows a lot of mercy to come to that stance, there was something about it that just didn't seem to be sitting right with Joseph. And the reason why it wasn't sitting right with him is because God was stirring Joseph's heart. God was ministering to Joseph. There was no peace. And that peace was an indicator, you know what, this decision isn't where God wants me to go. And so Joseph is wrestling with this. He's stirring with this. We thank the Lord that he was sensitive to that stirring. And so again, I imagine in my mind, this day was a whirlwind for Joseph. He began the day, it was a beautiful sunny day, he's moving toward his marriage and he's counting down the days on the calendar, he pulls off another day on the calendar, it's only going to be this far away, I can't wait, it's going to be great, it's going to be so exciting, I'll finally be able to wed the woman that I love. And then all of a sudden, a whirlwind came in and everything was thrown off. And Joseph finds out that his wife is pregnant and he's been going through all this stuff for the day and racking his brain as to what he should do. And he finally plops down on his bed And he quickly falls asleep. And notice what verse 20 says. It continues. It says, And as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So here's Joseph He falls asleep, a dream begins, and the angel speaks to him. Notice the opening. It's quite an opening. The angel says, Joseph, 
son of David. Now remember, David is not his dad. David is his great-great-great-grandfather. It's referring to King David. That's a strange opening to begin with. And so the angel comes in and he says, Joseph, son of David. Now last week I shared with you that that phrase, son of David, is a messianic title. It's what Jesus would be referred to as the son of David. But that's not what the angel is trying to get at here in this passage. He's not making a statement that Joseph is the Messiah. Rather, what he is doing is he's making reference back to the royal line from which Joseph comes. So essentially, he's saying this to Joseph. He says, Joseph, you are a great man that comes from a great line, and you are being called to do a great work. That's how he begins, if you will, when he says, Joseph, son of David. He says, you're being called to do a great thing. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Then he goes on to say in the the passage there, he says, because that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, what he's saying in that statement is essentially this. Joseph, Mary wasn't unfaithful. She wasn't immoral. She wasn't raped or abused by some Roman soldier, anything like that. Mary is pregnant according to the Holy Spirit. And then after that, he'll go on to say, as the prophet said, a virgin has conceived and will bring forth a son. Now something about this encounter immediately convinces Joseph of its truth. Because if you look at verse 25, it says, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel had commanded him. Joseph hops right up, he marries Mary, and after she gives birth, together with her, will raise her baby as his own in obedient response to this dream. Now, would you have blamed Joseph if he didn't immediately believe that Mary was miraculously conceived in the way she did? Would you think less of him as a person? I can't believe you wouldn't believe that. Anybody? Certainly you wouldn't think less of him. That's How would you respond? You, you would find it hard to believe. Even Mary, when she was given the details, she asks a clarifying question. Well, how can this be? I've never been with a man, she says. Not unbelieving, just ununderstanding. I don't think that's a, a word. But that's essentially where she is. And here's Joseph. He jumps right up. He says, all right, if that's what the Lord is doing, this is not the normal order of things. And I think that's why Matthew inserts verse 22 where he says all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and they will call his name Emmanuel. Notice Matthew adds there in parentheses, which means God with us. That prophet that Matthew is referring to is the prophet Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, we read this. This happened 700 years earlier, by the way. This is the prophecy we read. It says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call His name Emmanuel. The Matthew prophecy reads almost identically with the exception of the fact that Matthew adds a parenthesis in which he says, which means God with us. 700 years earlier, God predicts that a virgin would conceive and bring forth a son. And here we are now to that particular day. Now the scoffer will say, yeah, but, come on. First off, I think they come from a place of unbelief. But the scoffer will say, that word that is used there for a virgin, it can also mean young girl. Obviously, a virgin conceiving and giving birth, that's a miracle. A young girl, 15, 16 years old, getting pregnant, it's not so much of a miracle. 
That's what the scoffer will say. And they are correct that that word, that Hebrew word, can mean young girl. But the interesting thing is the word is used seven times in the Old Testament. It is never used for young girl in the Old Testament. It's always used for virgin. What I also find to be interesting, when the Old Testament in Hebrew was translated into the Greek language, when the Jews came back from the captivity, many of the children of the Jews didn't really know Hebrew anymore. They were there 70 years. Their kids knew the Greek language. And so the, when they come back into the land of Israel, the rabbis and others, they realized most people can't even read the Scripture anymore. And so they translated it into the language of the people, the Greek language. Seventy scholars got together. That's why it's called the Septuagint. Septa, the idea of 70 there. And when they translated it into the Greek language, so remember, in the Hebrew, the word could mean either virgin or young girl. When they translated into the Greek language, they took a word in the Greek that only means virgin. In the Greek language, they have another word for young girl. So way back here, even 200 years before Christ, they knew what the passage said. It says its clear intent is the word virgin. That's why they translated that. And you know, the scoffer, in my opinion, doesn't have to believe that Jesus came forth of a virgin, but they can't deny that the Bible teaches that Jesus came forth from a virgin. It reminds me of the quote from the former senator, he's now passed away, Daniel Moynihan. He said, you know, you're, to one of his adversaries, he said, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you are not entitled to your own facts. And the Bible is clear that Jesus came forth of a virgin. Not just a young girl, but of a virgin. Now, you might hear that and you say, well, you know, does it really matter? Maybe, does it really matter that Jesus came forth of a virgin? Couldn't he just have been conceived the typical way and still lived his life and taught the things he taught and died and rose in the way that he died and he rose again? Does it really matter that he was born of a virgin? And I would say to you, yes, it does matter. And here's why it matters. First of all, because the Scripture says he was born of a virgin. Isaiah chapter 7 that I just shared with you. Genesis chapter 3, the, ver the first prophecy of the Messiah speaks of this idea of the virgin birth. We see in the book of Matthew, chapter 1, it speaks of a virgin birth, as does Luke, chapter 1. So why does the virgin birth matter? Because the Scripture says it occurred in that manner. And quite frankly, that reason alone should be enough for us. We believe it because it says it. But the virgin birth is necessary for a variety of other re reasons as well. And additionally, I would suggest this. It's necessary because if Jesus were merely the product of the normal order of things, a man and a woman coming together and conceiving, then I think it would be very hard for us to understand how Jesus could be fully God. Because His origin would just be like every one of ours. And conversely, if Jesus had no earthly parents, or in this case, no earthly parent, but instead sort of miraculously descended from heaven as a full-grown man to the earth, then I think it would be impossible for us to understand how he could be fully human. And so, denying a physical origin, that is a connection between Mary and Jesus, would imply that he was not truly human. And denying a heavenly origin would imply that he was not fully God. But the Scripture teaches clearly that he was both fully human with a physical body like ours, and that he was God in the flesh. And so Mary then becomes this vessel this vessel in which God in the flesh, human, would come forth in what we have come to know as the incarnation, which comes from a Latin word which means to become flesh. The immaterial, that would be the spirit, and the material, 
Mary's womb, working together to bring forth the Savior. Mary, as a virgin, conceived and brought forth the Son. Now there is some question, which I think is appropriate for us to ask, because many of us come from different faith backgrounds. There's the question of, was Mary a perpetual virgin? And the idea of perpetual means goes on forever. That Mary, for the rest of her life, lived as a virgin. Virgin when she gave birth to Jesus, virgin, virgin, I should say, from that point on. The answer to that question is no. Mary was not a perpetual virgin. Virgin, sorry. The evidence is clear. Verse 25, look at it in our passage. It says, Joseph knew her not until she had given birth. The idea being that after she gave birth, they came together as a husband and wife would. Passages like Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 13, Mark chapter 6, John chapter 7. Every one of those passages speaks of the fact that Jesus had brothers, and some of those passages say that he had brothers and sisters. Galatians chapter 1.19 informs us one of his brother's names is James. He wrote us the book that we have in the Bible that is called James. We also know that another one of his brothers wrote the book of Jude. And so Jesus had earthly brothers. Mary was not a perpetual virgin. And unfortunately, it's a doctrine that was formed by a faith tradition that it has committed itself to elevating Mary to a place where she shouldn't be, even to the point of veneration. And though the idea is widely held, it's just not a biblical idea. And so no, Mary was not a perpetual virgin. Did I say it right? Virgin. I'm working at it here, forgive me. Now, I must admit, as I look at this passage, there's some confusing things here. When you take the prophecy of Isaiah and the words of this angel here, so the angel says essentially this from the Matthew passage. She says, or he says, or it says, Joseph, Mary is pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and she will give birth to a son, notice there, and you will call his name Jesus. Then goes on to essentially say this, and this is going to be a fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah, which says that a son is going to be born of a virgin, and you will call his name Emmanuel. That's confusing to me. What's his name? Is it Jesus or is it Emmanuel? I sure would have liked if he was just Emmanuel straight through or Jesus straight through. And so that seems to be confusing. Which one is it, Jesus or Emmanuel? The answer is both. I know you're thinking that's not a good answer. But the answer is both because Jesus is his name. Emmanuel is his nature. So in the same way, you may recall, we learned last week that Christ is not his last name. Jesus Christ, everyone thinks Greg Downs, Jesus Christ that that's just his last name. But that's not his name. Christ is his title. Christ, again, it means the anointed one. So Christ is his title. Emmanuel is not his actual name, despite the fact that some people use that as a name for their children, but rather it's a description of his nature. And that is, as it says here, Matthew adds, he is to be God with us. So his name is Jesus. The description of his nature is that he is God and that he is here amongst us. But his name is Jesus. Now, Jesus is not a really common name. We don't go naming our kids here. Uh, Jesus too often, probably, mostly, out of respect, kind of, he's Jesus. I know this kid's not going to be Jesus. We'll call him Bill, or something like that here. So it's not too common in our day to use the name Jesus. But Jesus, in that day, was one of the more common names. Today, I think the most popular boy's name is Jacob or something. 
like that. I think it has been for the last 20 years. I think there's a new one now. I don't remember. And you know, you go to school and you see all these kids in the playground and 10 of them are going to be Jacob or something like that or Stephanie or, or something if it was a girl. Jesus was one of those really common names at preschool or in, in first grade. Jesus is an English translation of the Greek and, and or Aramaic of the day. In Hebrew, it would be translated Yeshua. And the English transliteration of that is Joshua. And so here is little Joshua running around. That's who Jesus is. He's Joshua. You can know him as Jesus. You can know him as Yeshua. You can know him as Joshua. And every one of those terms, every one of those names, whether you're using the Hebrew or the, the English translation of the Greek, whatever it may be, every one of those names means the same thing. Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. And that's why the angel says His name shall be Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. So His name is Jesus. Jehovah is salvation. So we could read verse 21 this way. And He shall be called Jehovah is salvation for He will save His people from their sins. Matthew reminds us, informs us that He is God with us. The Holy One becoming a man meeting us in our place of sinfulness, but praise the Lord not leaving us there. Because look what that verse says, He will save His people from their sins. That's His mission. Jehovah is salvation. Now the passage here and the Scriptures imply to us what salvation is. I think often if I said to you, what's salvation? I think most of us would respond, I'm going to go to heaven one day. I'm going to be forgiven of my sins because of that I trust in Jesus. I will be saved. I'll have salvation. That's only one aspect of salvation. It's certainly an important one, but it's only one aspect of the equation. Jesus, when He died for our sins, He dealt with the penalty of our sin. The Bible says there's a penalty for our sin. Romans chapter 6.23, it says that the wages of our sin is death. There's a penalty for our sin. And the, the ministry of Jesus as defined for us right here at the start, the ministry of Jesus is to deal with and to cover the penalty of our sin. That our debt will be paid and the result for you and I, if we believe, will be eternal life. Now that's glorious. But even more than that, to say that He will save His people from their sins, it's beyond that He will save His people from the penalty of their sins. But as I like how G. Campbell Morgan worded it, he also comes to deal with the pollution of our sins. What I mean by that is that Jesus comes to deal with our past and wash us clean. The Bible says this. It says if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. Another way the Bible says it, it says it this way. It says, if any man is in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. Jesus saves us not just from the penalty of our sin, but He saves us from the stains and the pollution that our sins have caused. What I mean by that is He washes us anew. I want to give you an example of when this really hit home for me. I think I believed this doctrinally, but it didn't really hit home to me until I was on a mission trip. I was in the country of Belize. I was traveling with a group of women, women from this church and we were hitting a bunch of churches throughout the country of Belize. I essentially went as a security guard as we traveled around, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, and as I traveled around with this group of women, one of the ladies on our team 
She got up to speak at this little conference there of women at this little church that we were at. And I actually know this woman, knew this woman very well. And she got up and she began to share her testimony of how Jesus had come into her life and how Jesus had changed her life. And she began during that time to speak of her past. And as she did so, she began to paint a pretty sordid story. Fighting back tears, she spoke of things that she had done, things that later had caused her great pain and great shame. She spoke about the lingering effect of some of those decisions. And there I am, I'm the only guy pretty much in the entire facility, there I am sitting out in the audience and I was shocked. But I wasn't shocked because of the things that she had done. What shocked me was, I thought I knew this woman very well. She actually lived with my wife and I for about two, three years. I thought I knew this woman very well. And I had no idea of this past in this girl's life, and, and woman's life. And here's the point that I'm making. All of those stains that she was now sharing with us, all of that pollution had been dealt with. That Jesus had taken this woman and cleansed her of all of that sin. And now, standing before me was a new creation. And for me, to try and even conceive of this woman in her pre-Jesus days was almost an impossibility for me to even imagine. And the reason is because Jesus had done a cleansing work in her. And if you knew her, you would agree with me that it was impossible to define this woman by her past because Jesus had done a new work. That old man... In her case, that old woman was dead and gone and a new creature in Christ had come. Jesus said clean. He saved her from her past and He washed those stains away. Now maybe you have a past. Maybe you wonder if those stains could ever be cleansed. I, I answer to you today on the authority of the Word of God that the answer is yes. Because His name is Jesus. And He came to save His people from their sins. Not just a future dealing with the penalty of our sins, but He deals with the pollution and the stains that our sins have caused in our lives and in our hearts. And let me make one final point. His name is Jesus. He came to save His people from their sins. He saves us from the penalty. He saves us from the pollution. And gloriously, He saves us from the power of sin as well. Isaiah chapter 61 essentially says this, that the Messiah will come to set the captives free. It says to proclaim liberty to those that are captives. The book of Proverbs, it tells us this about sin. It says that the evil man is held captive by his own sins. They are ropes that catch him and hold him and bind him. Sin binds us. It makes us beholden to it. And we become its slave. And like Paul, we discover the truth of this statement. It resonates with us, what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7, when Paul said this, he says, I don't understand my own actions. That which I don't want to do, I do. For I, let me, oh boy, it's confusing. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Sin binds us. But all of that changes when we are in Christ. And why is that? Because what does the Scripture say? It says His name is Jesus. And He came to save His people from their sin. That's why Paul would add at the end of that passage in Romans chapter 7, Paul would have essentially conclude this. He says, Oh, wretched man that I am. He says, Who will deliver me 
from this body of death, this body of sin? And then he answers his own question. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus came to save us from our sin. He deals with the penalty. He deals with the pollution. But He also deals with the power. Deliverance from the power of sin is found in Christ. Many of us, even today as Christians, no doubt are still bound in some way by sin. It might be a particular substance. It might be a particular lifestyle. In some cases, it could just simply be that you're perpetually lazy or selfish or angry or whatever adjective or phrase you want to throw in there in that particular place. Well, here's the message of the Gospel. Jesus Christ came to set you free from those things that bind you, to deliver you. Our Messiah has come. The One that we needed all along, the One that would save His people from their sins. And His name is Jesus. And as I added at the end of last service, and I love Him. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we delight in the reality of the truth that Your Son came and set us free from sin. Lord, of course, we are grateful that we can look forward with hope to the other side of the grave. And that You dealt with the penalty and one day we'll be able to spend eternity with You in heaven. And Father, we do indeed delight. I delight over the fact that our lives are being changed. Maybe it doesn't seem like it to me because I live with myself every day. Maybe it doesn't seem like it to my friend down there in Belize. But for those sort of on the outside observing, we're seeing a new man, new woman that is being created as each day sanctification is taking place. And Lord, we rejoice in that truth as well. But Father, I, I can't help but think that maybe the greatest benefit of salvation is that the chains have been cut. And all of those sins that have bound us for so long. Lord, our own flesh, addictions to this thing or to that thing, all of those things that have bound us and kept us hindered from moving forward with You. Lord, You have cut those chains. Lord, that the power of sin has been dealt with because Your name is Jesus and You came to save Your people from their sins. Lord, I just sense today that there's some of us here we know we're Christians. We know we've been forgiven. We know that we're going to go to heaven. And we know that the chains were cut. But we haven't got up and walked away from that sin. Lord, we haven't taken hold of the freedom that is in Christ. Indeed, You have come to set the captives free. And Lord, I pray that today that the truth of that simple phrase that that angel shared that His name is Jesus and He came to save His people from their sins, Lord, that that would hit home in a way that is life-changing in the lives of many of us, if not all of us, that are here this morning. Lord, we want to delight in You and we want to walk in the victory that You have won for us. And Father, we believe that these are prayers that are according to Your will. And so we pray them in the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen.